WMQA. Hello and welcome to WMQ&A, the official podcast of the WMQ Comics website. I'm your host, Dan Grote, and uh, the time has come. It's almost the end of the year. It's almost the end of the 2010s. So uh, one more time for 2019, I have uh, sounded the shofar and uh, summoned the three amigos. Uh, Matt's here. Rob's here. Uh, Clowns to the left of me, Joker's to the right, but none of them Joaquin Phoenix. Uh, And... uh, we're gonna we're gonna do what a lot of people are doing right now, talking about uh, best comics of the decade, and uh, we just drew straws. Matt's gonna go first. So, uh, I'm getting the expected out of the way right off the bat. No pun intended. You I, intended that pun. Actually, I didn't. And don't I lie to our listeners, Matt. Okay. <laughs> um, so we're starting off with my bat book of the decade. Now this. This has been a really solid decade of bat titles between Snyder's extended New 52 run, King's extended Rebirth run, uh, James Tynion's run on Detective, uh, Peter Tomasi's Batman and Robin, the end of the Morrison era. There's been all sorts of good, good, wholesome, batty, batty goodness. But for me... The best Bat book of the 2010s was right at the beginning of that decade. And it was Scott Snyder's first Bat story, uh, The Black Mirror, in Detective from issues 871 to 881. The last Bat story before the New 52 came along. And it is interesting for me, a diehard and devout Bruce Wayne fan, to be doing a Dick Grayson as Batman story. But this is a book, one of, the, one of those comics that makes me really look and say, what if the New 52 hadn't happened? Because Snyder builds this really interesting little world. He spends that arc giving Dick Grayson his own rogues gallery. He creates four new bat villains. And I I think people have created all sorts of bat villains, and a lot of them over the past decade are pretty forgettable, uh, except for, I mean, Snyder's own Court of Owls are particularly memorable. Mm -hmm. But I think Snyder created an absolutely fascinating, two absolutely fascinating villains in there who could have had really extended potential, one of whom... I'll get back to at the end of this, who did show up again in the New 52, but not under Snyder's pen until much later. And one, the one I want to talk of specifically here is The Dealer. Uh, the Dealer was introduced in the first of the Black... The Black Mirror is really three smaller arcs with a sort of backup running through them. Uh, the Black Mirror is the first arc, and the whole sort of trade is given the name of that first arc. But the dealer was the villain of that first story. He's this withered old man who makes his living having an auction house called Mirror House, where he sells the detritus of battles between Batman and his rogues. He sells the items, like supervillain memorabilia to Gotham's... uh, moneyed class and he's just he has this philosophy 
and it's a genuinely creepy philosophy that evil is the true you know, uh, sort of core of humanity, which, you know, we hear, but his reasoning is actually uncomfortably accurate that, you know, in nature, we do see animals doing good for other animals and helping other animals, but only humanity has pure malice for no other reason than malice's sake. And there's this, his gas mask and cane, and he's a great visual from Jock who does the art for the majority of the, the run. Um, but he introduces him. He gives Dick Grayson, uh, he introduces Sonia Zuko, the daughter of the man who killed Dick's parents, who's trying to make, you know, a name for herself in the legitimate world as a banker, but is still kind of shifty. Um, a couple of other less, memorable villains but still you know a guy called the road runner who's a gun runner who sells who hides his guns in high-end cars and has cybernetic legs and tiger shark who's a modern day pirate who wears a bandana over his face and only wears clothes made from endangered species so it's very craven of him yeah yeah there's a vibe <laughs> but the biggest bad of that entire 11 issues and the one who's sort of an undercurrent from the first issue on is James Gordon Jr. Mm. Jim's son who appears in, you know, Batman Year One and in a couple of other flashbacks and then disappears for the entirety of Batman's continuity until Snyder brings him back. And Jim Jr. is a sociopath. He is a textbook sociopath. No empathy. And there is concern that he is a killer at the beginning. The Jim has a an arc of his own because when this series first started, this was when DC was doing um, Draw the Line at two ninety nine, where they had <laughs> taken most of their books back to a two ninety nine price point from a three ninety nine price point, and the books that remained three ninety nine were a twenty page lead and an eight page backup. Mm -hmm. And the first two issues of Black Mirror are a 20-page Black Mirror and then eight pages of Skeleton Keys, which is about Jim and his son. And then it would be sort of you'd get one of the, the jock arcs, and then you get an issue of Snyder and Francesco Francovia in his sort of breakout comics role doing these detective stories. And... Jim Jr. is chilling because there is, you know, many of your psychopaths in comics are, you know, they're jokers, they're riddlers, they're two-faced, they're big and bold. And, you know, but Jim Gordon Jr. has that sort of cold, dead eye sort of thing going that is a real different take than you get from pretty much all the rest of Batman's rogues gallery. And the fact that he is Jim's son and that he is preying on his sister because mm. Barbara was, you know, the one that they loved. And Barbara, this is still Oracle. Barbara's still in the wheelchair. Mm -hmm. And because he knows, he's figured out she's Oracle, he knows Dick. And he knows Dick must be Batman. So he knows all of this. And, you know, he would go on to play a role in Gail Simone's run on in Batgirl 
and a brief appearance, which I wish they had done more with him in Suicide Squad as a member of the squad, as their sort of analyst, hmm. and then popped up again recently in The Batman Who Laughs. But he's never been quite as creepy as he was when Snyder played with him in this arc. And it's, it's 11 issues, and it has a really strong beginning, middle, and end. But it is really this case of, boy, what could Snyder have done if he had been able to do the 50-issue run? If he'd been able to... I mean, that was... This ends at 881. If he'd gotten 19 more issues and been able to build up to some sort of climactic Dick Grayson as Batman story in Detective 900. Uh, there's an absolute edition of this that I got recently when I you know, realized I was going to do this, it was my excuse to finally buy Absolute Black Mirror. <laughs> and the, both the Jock and the Frank Avia art on those oversized, glossy uh, Absolute pages is well, well worth it. It's funny. You, you mentioned uh, the, the, the old uh, holding the line at two ninety nine phrase, and now it's, it's really more like trying inching the line up to four ninety nine. <sighs> whenever possible yeah it is <laughs> yeah uh, so that's the thing but um yeah i guess uh i'll i'll uh i'll bat second here um i'm going i'm going to start with uh i just reread the first trade of this actually for the show but uh sex criminals uh matt Ooh. fraction and and chip zadarsky um I love this book. I love, you know, I, I generally love comedy. So this, this was sort of, uh, you know, a natural place to go. Um, if you're not familiar, Image Comics series, uh, it's still going, actually. The final arc is going to start in January after, I think they took like a year and a half off. Um, you know, because Chip's been writing a lot of Marvel stuff, which I'll get to. But uh, basically, it's about this couple, John and Susie, and they both dis, you know, have discovered separately over the course of their, of their lives that when they uh, achieve orgasm, they can stop time uh, for everything but themselves. And when they, they meet each other and, and both discover that they have this ability, uh, they originally decide to use it to rob banks. Um, you know, and so that's sort of the original hook for the series, but really, that's like the first arc. After that, and there's been five volumes collected uh, so far, it becomes more about just the rules of, of this world and who else has, you know, sex-based abilities and how do they sort of fit into the, the, this whole picture and who's sort of pulling the strings uh, you know, that early on, it's, it's supposed to be this, this woman who's like a police dispatcher, uh, who can basically sort of has the same abilities, but, you know, controls it herself. Um, she's called Kegelface. That's about as much information I'll give you about that. Uh, you know, they, so, but it's not all people who can stop time. There are others who can sort of make weapons, put it that way, politely <laughs> make, uh, kaiju out of stuff <clears throat> we've got an e-rating you can we can... <laughs> yeah it, it, there's a yeah there's a mature rating on this is a mature rating on this podcast so i don't know why i'm holding back uh wu-tang is for the children but anyway um <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know and, and 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 it's it's hilarious a lot of it is hilarious but it's also 
you know, with the understanding that, you know, obviously sex complicates relationships. And, and how does it complicate the relationship between John and Susie? How does it complicate the relationships between the other characters uh, in the book? So you get some very emotional moments. The, the fifth arc, you know, it's probably the slowest of the book. But basically, there's a, there's a reunion that happens at the end of, of, the, of the last issue that was released that, you know, is very much the sort of emotional payoff, you know, and, and now let's go chase down... Uh, the big bad guy. Now, uh, since this series debuted, uh, Chip Zdarsky especially has been doing a lot more uh, big two work. Uh, instead of, of drawing, he's been writing stuff for Marvel. He did Spectacular Spider-Man. He did Life Spider-Man Life Story, which is one of my favorite comics of this year. Um, I wrote about it for the WMQ Advent Calendar. You check that out. His run on Daredevil is ramping up with each issue like i wasn't sure about it the first couple issues but it's gotten progressively more interesting this week's issue was really fascinating yeah um marvel two-in-one uh the the superior fantastic four book mm-hmm. <laughs> uh for my money he's got the x-men fantastic four coming up yeah i can't wait for that uh he's very good at superheroes uh, surprise you know, I, I wouldn't have, have, have pegged it, pun intended, uh, you know, just going off of sex criminals. But the other thing is, you know, he's also a really good cartoonist. So, I mean, the fact that, you know, he can be a utility player in the industry is just, you know, you love to see it, basically. You know, Fraction has gone off and done a lot more uh, indie work, less so the big two stuff. But he recently came back and did uh, Superman's pal Jimmy Olsen for DC. And again, that's another one of my favorite series uh, from this year. So, uh, you know, the pair of them and then on their individual projects, uh, probably two of my favorite creators uh, working. And it's all come from, pun intended, uh, this, you know, (laughs) funny little series about people who have sex and rob banks. (laughs) Rob, you're, you're on deck. All right, ramblers get rambling. <laughs> all right, everyone. Abandon all hope, ye who enter this podcast. My first pick is a licensed book, and it is Godzilla in Hell. Um, talking about Batman having a great decade. I mean, the big green guy as well. I mean, we had two, you know, uncommonly good American, you know, tellings of him. Uh, one uh, very interesting Japanese telling, which... Uh, you know, turned out to be, you know, like a really menacing monster movie in a very, like, strange, loving, you know, bureaucratic satire. Um, Criterion just released this, like, gorgeous box set recently of all, you know, the original films. Yeah, I mean, it's more like a piece of pop art than it is, you know, like, physical media. Um, And then IDW actually released some very interesting work on the comic side, and I don't think anything more so than Godzilla and Hell. Um, you know, I'm a big fan of things that kind of play outside the box. And uh, this plays, you know, so far out of that expected box. I mean, it's just downright startling that, you know, Toho would even, like, allow its iconography used, you know, in such, like, an esoteric way. Um, when you talk about licensed material, I mean, it's always an extension of, you know, the original product. I mean, it's going to be formulaic by nature. Basically, you know, you pump out more of the same thing. It's, you know, the opposite of risky. Um, And this is a book that opens with, you know, the big G, you know, illustrated, you know, in in tiny scale, you know, tumbling into, you know, the sphincter of hell into this lavishly surreal wasteland. The first thing that he finds is, uh, 
you know, abandoned all hope stone monolith that kind of reminds, you know, the, the Starank, the classic Staranko uh, Hulk annual, which, you know, he obliterates, <laughs> of course. Um, and then each issue he uh, traverses into like a different circle of hell with a different creative team or a different, you know, individual creator, issue by issue. Uh, a good example of an exquisite corpse where it works, you know, in such a surreal setting, you know, this, this, you know, that different take on, you know, works beautifully. Um, more or less the complete lack of like narration gives the action, um, very like uh, a nightmarish and interpretive feel to it. Uh, one instance, uh, the first issue, which I think is the best, uh, the great James Stucco illustrates uh, a scene where uh, Godzilla encounters and insulted by hordes of these uh, human forms which it's kind of easy to interpret maybe you know the souls of collateral damage all the people you know that have died in his wake um and the classic toho iconography is used throughout and you see you know the murderer's row of all you know the different monsters um but the actual interactions and everything i mean it, it seldom resembles anything seen in the films and the way that, you know, the iconography is used, I mean, there's actually a vision of Godzilla in heaven in one issue, and he encounters angels with Mothra wings. <laughs> pretty pretty nightmarish and wild. Um, I think in comic terms that like, you guys would really understand, um, the best way to really describe this is, you know, you have an established series with a creative team, and you have somebody like Barry Windsor Smith coming in to do a fill-in issue. Mm -hmm. It's going to be something, it's going to be like this brief and beautiful fever dream. You know, like, creative team's going to be, like, playing catch-up. He's going to come in and just work this, like, strange mojo. And this is basically an entire story of that, you know, in the middle of, you know, your usual, you know, kaiju <laughs> action. Um, Life, death, the series. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, but sadly, I assume Godzilla does not at any point shrink and wear a trench coat and fedora. Uh, he does not. <laughs> he does not encounter Bambi or Charles Barkley either, unfortunately. <laughs> or Dum Dum Dugan. Dum Dum Dugan. Nuts. Um, I mean, talk about, you know, the gorgeous art, you know, between, you know, there's the co Bob Eggleton, who does an all painted, gorgeously painted issue. Um, this is something that I would love to see reprinted in like an oversized format, kind of like what Marvel's doing with the treasury editions, uh, perfectly suited for that. Um, now because of the, you know, interpretive nature of the book, I mean, you're either going to find like a deeper meaning into all of this. I mean, there's almost like this Milton notion of, you know, is it better to rule in hell than to serve in heaven? I mean, the third issue kind of touches on that somewhat, where Godzilla is basically given a choice between the two, and his uh, decision is somewhat unique and expected. <laughs> um, so you can either take that, or, you know, is this pretentious kaiju pornography? Is this just, you know, <laughs> you know this, it, this great imagery, you know, all, all fury and no, you know. <laughs> either way, I mean... It, my reasoning for really picking it, I mean, it's a wonderful example of the greatness of the medium. I mean, you know, comics, graphic storytelling, whatever you want to call it. I mean, where you can express something artistically in a way that you can't necessarily do in any other visual medium. You're not going to see a film like this. You know, so that's it. Godzilla and Hell. Check it out. <laughs> so from... You know, kaiju and the supernatural, I'm going in completely the other direction with something very gritty and very street level 
and very, very real world. I think anyone who has read the things that I write know that I can say nothing but the best of things about the team of Ed Brubaker and Sean Phillips. From the first thing they did together, Gotham Noir, up until last week's issue of The New Criminal, they have never done anything but hit a home run for me. But for the, the grand slam of Phillips and Brubaker work, it is to me the fade out. Uh, a 12-issue maxi-series set in old Hollywood. Uh, during the uh, the communist blacklists. It's a, a period of time that I tend to find very interesting historically. Um, it's something my father and I are both fascinated by and we will discuss. But this is a noir set in the time of noirs. It centers around uh, Charlie Parrish, who is a Hollywood screenwriter and vet suffer suffering from PTSD. And because of this, he can't write. He's completely blocked. And so what he's done is he's become a front for his old writing partner, Gil Mason. Gil is a noted communist who is now on the blacklist. And for those of you out there who aren't familiar, a front was a term f during this period of people who would accept the credit for screenplays and sell them and then pass the money on to their blacklisted brethren. Uh, the story has Parrish, quote-unquote, writing a screenplay for a movie starring a blonde bombshell starlet named Val Summers that he is infatuated with. And by the end of the first issue, Charlie, who is also a drop-dead drunk, I'm not even going alcoholic, I'm saying flat-out, a drunk, comes out of one of his blackouts in a hotel room with Val, who is very much dead. The series then becomes uh, Charlie and Gil working together to try to find out who murdered Val and what is behind all this while dealing with their own personal issues, including the fact that Charlie is having an affair with Gil's wife and that while Gil and his wife Melba have an open relationship. The fact that it's his best friend has become a whole thing. And they're meeting all of these Hollywood characters who, while they're not, you know, actual people, all very much fit in the tropes of that time. And I use the word tropes in an odd way because they're all sort of representative of real people. Okay. Um, there's Dottie, who's the, you know... The girl in the press room, you know, the, the press for the, the Hollywood studios, and Brodsky, who is the the studio fixer. And if you go and read about old time Hollywood, all these studios had guys who would, you know, make problems with their stars disappear. If you got a girl pregnant, don't worry, he would find a way to take care of it. It's a real Ray Donovan type. Yes. Uh, there's a character who is gay, and that was needless. And he was a you know a handsome star, so that was not to be done. And Brodsky makes sure that nobody finds out about his trysts. In the end, it be becomes this. You find out that there's much more to the 
the darkness and the underbelly of Hollywood than even these two guys who knew about how bad Hollywood could be. There's way more to it as it, it goes back to uh, character that addresses Old Man Camp, who's the head of the studio, and they think he might have done it. But it turns out he's done things that are far worse than murder. And there's, uh, in the end, and I don't want to necessarily give away who the killer is because it is a mystery. But you find out that not only are there, you know, unfortunate, you know, people having sad and unfortunate lives because of they want to be a part of Hollywood, but there is murder and there are children being abused and there are people who are there secretly to name names and inform and bring down people for the sheer shadow of communism. And the end of the book is pure noir. In the, if you look at the tropes of a noir, not, you know, using that phrase is that description is used often now for any sort of dark, gritty story. But the fade out is an actual noir where there are no characters who are above reproach and the ending is not a happy one the ending is an end of compromise at best and even with all of that it's an amazing story and phillips researched the hell out of it and it looks like something right out of that late 40s early 50s hollywood it's a tremendous comic. And if you've not read any of the Brubaker and Phillips stuff, this is pure self-contained, 12 issues in and out. There's a, a complete trade and I believe a complete hardcover with back matter that I will probably wind up getting at some <laughs> point or another because I own a lot of comics in both singles and then really nice oversized editions because I'm a weak, weak man. Um, but this is... The Fade Out is well worth your time. It's awesome. Um, did you, you saw they just announced a, a, a Brubaker Phillips Western, right? Yes. Oh, <laughs> the, the, uh, we were talking and saying that, you know, our, the two years into our advent calendar last year day three was brubaker and phillips my heroes have always been junkies and this year day three was the new volume of criminal i have little to no doubt that next year day three is going to be pulp the new brubaker and phillips ogn because it, it's it's a western but it's a western through the lens of a guy who's writing pulp novels about westerns so it's it's actually probably pretty much in a similar time frame as the fade out maybe a little earlier i can't wait <laughs> oh man <clears throat> these are a few of my favorite um okay so my number two pick uh another image book uh chew so at the beginning of this decade i was not reading comics as as fervently as I am now you know I think there was there's 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 a gap period from like the mid 2000s to the mid 2010s give or take where you know I was I was reading but it was most it was like trades only and and you know not quite to the you know degree that I was in high school and and now that I'm running a website but chew was a book that Matt introduced me to 
uh, written by John Lehman, drawn by Rob Guillory, uh, FBI agent, or yeah, FBI agent Tony Chu, uh, retains the memories of the foods or substances, things, uh, that he eats. So he's contracted by the FDA to, oh wait, no, he's not an FBI agent, sorry, he's a Philadelphia detective. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, he ends up working for the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, uh, in a world where chicken has been outlawed because mm-hmm. there basically was a, uh, let's say, a Why the Last Man style virus that killed a lot of people. Uh, and, and you know, it leads down into this great uh, conspiracy about chicken and people with food-based abilities. I'm going from a book of about people with sex-based abilities to one with people about, you know, food-based abilities are very specific things. But, you know, there's there's a guy who's sort of like the um, the siler of the book. He is an ability absorber who kind of decides to act like a vampire, uh, you know, and we meet the members of, of Tony's family, his twin sister, Tony, who's like the opposite of, of the other Tony Chu, Tony with a Y, uh, who's, you know, very grumpy and by the book where Tony with an I, his sister, is a very bubbly personality, uh, works for NASA. Um, you know, don't get attached to her, but also you will get attached to her uh, and it's sad. And, and then there's there's Tony with a wise daughter who, you know, and basically outpowers her father in uh, food-based abilities, uh, put it that way. Uh, there's his partner, Colby, who becomes a bisexual cyborg. Uh, and then there's probably the breakout character of the book, a uh, cyborg luchador rooster by the name of Poyo, uh, who is a badass motherfucking bird. Um, they, there's like three or four Poyo one-shots within the course of the series that, you know, every, everything is heightened. You know, Rob Gillier has a very heightened style. Uh, you know, it's it's a lot of, of humor cartooning. It's a lot of gross-out gags. But the Poyo issues go above and beyond. Because while the, the, the book itself, you know, while there's a heightened conceit, it's still fairly grounded. Poyo goes to hell. Poyo goes to a fantasy realm. Does he meet Godzilla? <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know, but he does fight a, a penguin Cthulhu. Ah. <laughs> Among other things, uh, there's a pineapple with tentacles that tastes like chicken. Um, there's just there's just a lot of great, creative, fun, imaginative stuff uh, in the book, and it ran for sixty issues. And I don't think it missed a beat, to be quite honest. Uh, it's a strong sixty. Um, ended in twenty sixteen, uh, I want to say, uh, and um, it was almost adapted. It almost became a movie. It almost became an animated thing. And, and those things just sort of never worked out. But, you know, the good news on that front, uh, Rob Guillory went on to draw, uh, er, to create, write and draw, uh, another series that I'm really enjoying out now from Image called Farmhand. It's about this uh, farming family in Louisiana that makes uh, genetically modified uh, farm-grown human body parts for transplant and the uh, perils and problems that that presents. Um, that is in the middle of being adapted for AMC, which Guillory is heavily involved in. So, you know, I, I definitely wish him uh, better luck with that. 
But uh, on top of that, if uh, what I am saying is enticing you and you go out and you reach you and you love it, um, there is going to be uh, next spring a three-part crossover with John Lehman's current series, Outer Darkness, which is a future sci-fi space tale, like many image books. <laughs> but they're, I, I guess they're going to just pluck the, the characters from Chu <laughs> from somewhere in their timeline and just bring them into the world of Outer Darkness. And sure, why not? I'm here for it. <laughs> from what I gather, uh, our friend John Bush, the manager up at Dewey's Comic City, was telling me about Outer Darkness, and I was trade waiting, and the first trade is now out. I believe it's, you know, sci-fi if... The engines of the ships were powered by Cthulhu. It's got a very event horizon-y kind of vibe. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I'll be adding that to my ever-growing stack of trades pretty soon. (laughs) (sighs) You love it. I do. (laughs) I won't deny it. Um... But yeah, it's another series that that is a lot of fun, but still has, has heart. Uh, in all the right places, so uh, that's 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 my number two pick. All right, well, if you're out there, I hope I do this one justice because I'm about to serve up 31 flavors of weird shit, lickety split. <laughs> Talking about the fantastic ice ice cream man from uh, W Wax Mel Prince. Um, it's an anthology. It's a horror anthology, which is you know one of my big bread and butters. Uh, bread, breads and butter. Um, but we see something um, that's a little bit more original than the EC approach. Um, the titular entity, Rick, um, works as both a narrator and a player in varying degrees um, in these uh, character-based vignettes that are less about the hook or the gotcha moment. That's sort of like the hallmark of the anthology you know, genre. Um, they end with you know, on a reflective note, which is more haunting and evocative, and evocative than uh, necessarily like thrilling. Um, I'm fascinated by the running theme, um, which seems to be that there's something rotten in all of us. Not in like a David Cronenberg sense, (laughs) but psychologically. I mean, this is psychological body horror, if that makes any kind of sense. Um, deals with, you know, themes of like desperation and loneliness, addiction, guilt, and grief. You know, the real horror isn't, you know, the supernatural incursions or the occasional graphic imagery, which, you know, they're effective and, you know, disturbing. Um, we're really not altogether equipped to handle reality. We're prone to, you know, serious psychological damage and trauma. Um, the book explores, you know, the extent of that. Um, we are our own boogeyman. You know, the ice cream man is just basically there to, you know, revel in it, participate in it, to watch it. Um, and it's all served up, you know, there's dark humor, a lot of gallows humor, um, that is sweetness. It, it, it's not a mean-spirited book, which is, you know, another unusual thing with horror. Um, I mean, there's, there's some really, you know, sinister humor in there. But, you know, to say some of the stories actually kind of end with sort of an uplifting element isn't, isn't too far off the mark. Um, you know, to talk about, you know, you have to also mention, you know, the, the very clever narrative choices that some of the issues take. Um, there's the uh, Neapolitan issue, which uh, you're nodding. Have you heard about this one? Uh, I've, I've got a different one that I can chime in on, but go, go ahead. Where it's, you know, basically this guy's life branches out into three different color-coded strips that kind of branch off um, very different, uniquely dark paths. 
Um, then there's the palindrome issue. That that's that's the one that I read. Where yeah. yeah, that deals with grief and loss. I mean, it's a trip to you know surreal underworld. It literally meets itself halfway through and then proceeds to tell the tale perfectly backwards with a little bit of different context. And, and at the same time, it's this it's this meditation on on grief. Yes, uh, you know it's amazing. I actually, uh, when I was at New York Comic Con, I talked to uh, Martin Morazzo, the artist on the book, specifically oh, wow. Wow. Uh, about that issue and sort of the challenge of, of you know mapping the whole thing, or whether it was easier because it was the same, you know, just the same thing backwards halfway through. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, I just I. I love when people play with story form like that. Yes, yes. I mean, and definitely, I mean, it, it goes into different genres. I mean, the first, I guess, say, volume of it is, you know, deals mainly with, like, suburban-type horror, like, kind of what lurks beneath, you know, within us and, you know, behind these doors, you know, these perfectly, you know, gated communities and everything. Um, it does stretch out into something of an origin tale where, you know, we find out a little bit more about Rick and uh, this mysterious Caleb, which, you know, is like for, he's sort of like opposing force for good, more or less. Um, we have a science fiction tale. So, you know, it's a little bit of everything. Um, there's a great early on, uh, great rock and roll fable about a one-hit wonder, like one of the original rock and rollers that ends up in a very uh, surreal fantasy land where you have like a mishmash of rock and roll characters and you know you have eleanor rigby and ziggy stardust and uh, rocky raccoon <laughs> who reads gideon's bible I mean, it, it's it's brilliant stuff i mean i can't say enough about it you know yeah um they actually just announced uh prince is doing a new series for boom with um all right i'm blanking on the artist but it's 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 somebody known but uh it's it's called king of nothing mm. where it's it, it's it looks like it's very much like a prince kind of series where it's but it's this like schlub who gets trapped in sort of a fantasy uh kingdom yeah type thing look it looks it looks great definitely look forward to that yeah excellent okay so i'm rounding out my three and i think We've arranged this in just the perfect way that whatever I'm talking about is almost the direct counterpoint <laughs> to what Rob had done before me. Because, you know, Godzilla in hell, the fade out. Ice Cream Man, weird, cerebral horror. I'm going the fun all ages route for number three. <laughs> because one of my other things that I really love are all ages comics. And I am speaking today... For my third entry about Giant Days. Uh, John Allison with uh, a few artists. Max Sarin towards the back half of the run. Did probably more than any of the other artists. Yeah, I think he did most of it actually. Yeah. Um, Giant Days is the story of three college roommates. The tough as nails we'll go as tough as nails susan ptolemy mm-hmm. the bubbly goth esther de groot and the wide-eyed and wonderful daisy wooten as they make their way through university and that's sort of it i mean it giant days exists in a heightened reality i mean every character is a little bigger mm-hmm than life a little more emotionally 
physically present than people are in their normal lives. Saren's art and the original artist on the book whose name is... Lisa Tremaine. Thank you. I forgot to write that down. Lisa Tremaine. Uh, have somewhat cartoony styles that are very expressive. So there's... It, it's, it never hits that, you know, manga, like giant eyes sort of thing, but these are characters that are drawn with big eyes and big faces so you really see what's going on. And throughout the the course of the 54 issues plus a handful of specials along the way each of the three characters sort of have an arc that they have to you know go through uh that susan has to open up because at the beginning she's very closed off from everyone esther has to take things more seriously because she sort of made it through life, uh, you know, as gothy as she is, almost happy-go-lucky. And she has to, you know, come out of university facing reality for what it is. And Daisy, who is very sheltered, has to see the wider world. And she, along the way, has to come to terms with her sexuality because she is... You're never, I mean, they, she very much dates girls throughout the entire series, but they never, you know, they're not late, they don't label, which is, you know, fine, which is great. But, but I don't want to, I don't want to apply a label to a character who never applies a label to herself. But they all have these journeys, but they all do it together. It's about the friendship that these three girls, ladies, women, women, they're, they're in college, it's women, have with each other and how they lift each other up. And there are all sorts of other great supporting characters. Uh, Susan's love interest, the wonderful mustachioed McGraw, who is what every man should want to be. Because he's... He's, he's young Ron Swanson. Yes, exactly. <laughs> he's not only great with his hands, but he respects everyone and is comfortable with himself and the world around him and is good and then on the other hand his buddy and roommate Ed Gemmel who is sweet and pines for for uh, Esther throughout most of the series but sort of gets beyond that by the end and you know there's Allison doesn't play to the expectation where you're like okay he's the nice guy who's had the crush on the girl and in the end they're gonna get together in a you know John Hughesy sort of way it's like no these were two people that weren't meant to be together, and they don't wind up together. And that's how life works, usually, and that's great. And there's all sorts of other, you meet, you go home with Susan, and you see the weird town she comes in where she gets dangled off a roof by the local, like, by her schoolyard rival who's now an adult because Susan lives in a weird almost Guy Ritchie movie-esque town. <laughs> and, you know, Esther and her, you know, all the, the people she knew, these weird, gothy people. And then there's Dean Thompson. Dean Thompson is the worst, and that is all. You, you can't say anything else about Dean Thompson. He has a man bun. He runs a ring of, you know, people writing papers for other students and doesn't, tell them and he is the worst and Dean Thompson gets what's coming to him and remains the worst 
And that's just great. Uh, the series wrapped up a few months ago and will, I'm sure, be collected in final, a final couple of trades and you'll be able to read it all. And if you want to read a comic that is affirming of the fact that we are people who can make connections with other people, can make real friends, and do good for each other, then read Giant Days from uh, Boom Studios. Uh, I can I can attest to that. Uh, I I kind of was a late I was a latecomer to Giant Days. I only really started reading it with like the last few issues. There were enough smart people in my life. Points to the right, uh, you know, evangelizing for this for this book. And uh, you know, we got we got to talk to uh, John Allison uh, a few months ago, and you know, it really was a delight. And the book is great. I mean, it's it's hilarious. It's a, it's a sitcom in in comic book form. Um, you know, I'm actually I, I kind of I cobbled together a uh, stack of of sort of the best of the 2010s for like an honorable mention segment, mm. uh, which we'll get to toward the end. But I've got the first uh, one of those uh, very handsomely collected, not on the test editions of Giant Days, which goes through like the first I don't know ten issues, big chunk of of the beginning of the series, and I definitely want to get uh, more of those. Uh, it's a good read. Um, all right, I guess we're coming on my last pick here. Uh, time for me to do the expected thing. Um, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk about X-Men now, but I'm going to start... I, I don't really think this is a hot take. I'm not going to come at you with that. I'm not, I'm not including this because X-Men was consistently good throughout the 2010s because it wasn't. Um, if anything, I'm giving it most improved status. Uh, you know, uh, again, we go back to sort of me not being a consistent reader, but, you know, X-Men was one of the things that I started out, you know, it's one of the things that got me into comics. Um, you know, the flagship X-Men stuff was not there for most of the decade. Now, if you, if we're going back to the beginning, you know, that's when, uh, uh okay, the X-Force was running, you know, we're about almost uh, Jason Aaron's Wolverine and the X-Men. There's, there's strong stuff there, but there's also Curse of the Mutants, you know, notable for no other reason than Cyclops telling Dracula, I want you to follow your heart, uh, TMJ edited. Um, you know, and then, of course, you get into, like, the middle of the decade, which is really where things kind of hit the shitter. Uh, with the whole trying to make the humans happen and Mpox and, and footnote on that. Yeah, please. No, no, no. Coming up. Not oh, thing. okay, yeah. okay. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I think it, it it took some time to kind of bring things back to, you know, where they should be, and you know, the Resurrect Scion era, <laughs> like twenty seventeen Blue Gold. You know, you start you start to get there. You go back to like, okay, I, these are readable. X-Men stories, but it's really, it's not until last year where things start to uh, improve, and, and yeah, you know, we can talk about the hawks and the pox all the, you know, till till the cows come home. Uh, it's, it's fucking great, everybody knows it, Hickman is life, you know, etc., but, you know, let's let's not lose sight of, of what came before it, too. There was a lot of really good, strong X-Men stuff that came out uh, before that, you know, Age of X-Men and everything. And, uh, you know, it's, it's funny. We were talking, you know, uh, this last week when we're recording this, 
is when we started getting all those teasers for the Hellions book. And, you know, it's like Mr. Sinister and Psylocke and Havoc and Nanny and Orphan Baker. And I'm like, oh, man, is this that Leah Williams book? I really hope this is. So, you know, uh, I had a different reaction when it turned out to be Zeb Wells. But, you know, it's fine, whatever. It's it's, it's coming. But, you know, the, the crop of writers who can now write X-Men at Marvel and write them competently and make me care about the characters uh, is vast. And the fact that they can't all write X-Men at the same time... <laughs> is a testament to how deep the bench is now. And that's a good thing. You know, I, I, I think we're back to where we once belonged with, with the book and with these characters. Um, hey, hold out hope. You know, since yeah. they're resurrecting, you know, these X licenses, they're still X Terminators. Since they brought back Fallen Angels, so, you know, there's that. <laughs> Bring back WizKid. <laughs> yes! <laughs> it's time for Taki. <laughs> um... In a world with as much tech as there is now, Taki is a powerhouse. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> you know that scene in uh, Infinity War where Shuri is talking, they're, they're working on the vision and she's talking to Bruce Banner <laughs> and she's like, well, would, did you try this? And he's like, oh, no, we didn't think about that. And she's like, well, I'm sure you did your best. That's talk, That's Taki to Forge. Yeah. <laughs> all, all day, every day. <laughs> But uh, anyway, yeah, no, I mean, obviously House of X and Powers of Ten was a revelation as as yeah. jumping on points go as, you know, not necessarily cosmic resets, because I, if anything, it it add it. Yes. And continuity and reinforms it in a way that actually makes you want to go back and reread old stories with new context. So anything with Moira. Yeah, like her first appearance where she shows up and she's the maid for the Xavier Mansion. You know, in the back of her life 10 having head, she's like, this motherfucker calling me the maid. And also, who's this fine-ass Irishman over here? <laughs> you know, I, I think, you know, in particular, I mean, Destiny has, like, really been on my mind. And I you know, mm -hmm. even went back to that issue where she died on Mirror Island. And I think there's going to be a little bit more to that that we're going to see. You know, did she foresee all of this coming? And this is all for next year, so... Yeah, <laughs> yeah, no, 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 no. I mean, and, and that's the thing, like... Yeah, we're getting we're getting back to the point where there's probably too many X-Books, but all the things that have been teased, the fact that this Hellions book wasn't even a thing that anyone was expecting on top of Wolverine and X-Core and Alia Williams' book and a Vidaiala book and a book about Moira and a book about Resurrections... Yeah. You know, we're, we're, we're looking at a lot of kind of interesting content and it'll be good to see, it'll be interesting to see how these books sort of ebb and flow, stop and start. Like Fallen Angels is already, you know, it's going to end with, with five issues and that's, and that's fine mm -hmm. because there's a plan to carry those characters mm -hmm. forward and not all of these books needed to run forever anyway, um, except New Mutants. Mm -hmm. Keep that one going. It's really good. More Smasher. Yeah, I love Sam and Smasher. I want, <laughs> I want a Sam and Smasher series. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I get behind that. Yeah, more, 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 just parenting in comics, yeah. and <laughs> yeah, I that that just I'm I'm gonna, I'm gonna go on this tangent, but New Mutants number two and the whole dynamic between Sam and Bobby uh, yeah. is those you know polar opposite best friends, mm -hmm. and the fact that Hickman, who created Smasher, 
to or the current iteration of Sebastian, to be fair, you know, she's not the shrill wife. She's completely justified in knocking the color out of him. <laughs> <laughs> Which props to Rod Reese for drawing that that page the way he did with the, it. <laughs> Oh my god. So <laughs> You know, I would kind of love to see the New Mutants and Smasher go to a Lila Cheney concert. Just... Can we... Or yeah. So the panel where they're watching like hologram TV and Bobby puts Sam's ex-girlfriend Lila yes, Cheney on the... Yes. Dick move, bro. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's just trying to start something. Well, you know, he he's, would, he's a man with forgiveness in his heart. He, he would buy that... He, he'd buy those tickets and be like, hey... We got front row center, and we're going backstage after. You remember when we used to do that, Sam, when you were dating Lila? Wasn't she great? Well, I loved you with Lila. And, and you know, and I love how Hickman ha- it seems like he has a plan for Xandra. I mean, yeah. I was afraid that she was just going to be this one-off little thing that was going to be forgotten, you know? Yeah, like like the entire last year of Domino Comics. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and, and I am curious, now that... De- uh, New Mutants has been out for what two, three weeks. We're, we're I guess yeah. I'll still hashtag X spoilers this. Yeah. Uh, but now the Deathbird's back, mm-hmm. and Bobby's like, you know, I think I'm in love. Which gross, by the way. Yeah. Because Vulcan and that's exactly my it. first thought. Bishop. Yeah, she's <laughs> married to Vulcan. Vulcan is back, and now really likes grilling. Uh, okay. I mean, I him. get it. It, yeah. it it helps him control the fiery <laughs> passions inside him. Yeah. But it's like, oh, oh, Bobby, that is a bad decision, bro. I mean, even if it's not just Deathbird, who is a problem to begin with, but, you know, she's a married woman to a guy who's recently resurrected on your island. It's not going to end well for you, buddy. To be fair, he lives on the moon. That is true. <laughs> he does live on the moon. <laughs> he lives across the hall from Scott Jean and Logan's adjoining bedroom. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think I'm just gonna cue something up here. But you know, we were talking before about you know different writers, and I was saying you know, I would love to see Saladin Ahmed get you know get to do a boom of uh, a blink title on you know with you know Krakoa and you know Dan was like you know yeah he should be blink should, she should be bringing you know Krakoa seeds to alternate realities. And speaking of Saladin Ahmed... I was going to say, uh, again, footnote, uh, see later. And actually, uh, before I want to get into that, you know, I want to like address just you know, how hard as hell it was to come up with a third title. Now, these aren't necessarily in any kind of order, so I'm not going to say this is the best, even though what I'm about to talk about, I think, illustrates the best of Marvel and what they're, you know, they're capable of in the, you know, this last decade. But uh, you know, my method for doing this was you know, I, I, I came up with a list... Of books like okay these are all contenders you know i didn't want to go with a big two for my third choice originally it was gonna be silver surfer black uh, which i you know i absolutely love and i would say is probably my favorite of the year but i want to let that like marinate a little bit before you know maybe we'll talk about that tack it on to the next decade or you know in five years revisit that so i threw that one out and i came up with this list and i went to the shelves and i looked at my trades and everything and it's like I want to look at something that, you know, I, I, you know, previously, you know, experienced and loved that I really want to reread again. Not as a sense of like, okay, work, like, okay, I got to do this for this podcast, but I want to read for my own pleasure and revisit and everything. And it was Black Bolt by Saladin Ahmed and uh, Christian Ward. Talk about a book that nobody wanted. You know, you see, you know, my, my earlier, you know, <laughs> comment of uh, footnote C later, I mean... 
you know, you had those years where, you know, they were really trying hard to make the agreements happen. And I think they failed. They were trying to go big with them. And here they actually succeed by going small. I mean, it's a very... I don't want to say it's necessarily like an intimate story. You know, I'll get into that in a second. But, you know, it is very introspective. And we... Unusual in that we actually get to care about a character that really... I don't think... We, we took for granted. We, I don't want to say we didn't give a shit about, but... On a very superficial level. Okay, well, Black Bolt's cool. You know, he's quiet, he's stoic, you know. He has that potential to be the most destructive force. I mean, you had that wonderful moment at the end. What was it? Uh, Son of M? Silent War? Silent War, yes. Mm -hmm. Where, you know, you will have your answer shortly. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Everybody, you know, gets the fuck out of there. <laughs> he just says that one word, war. And, you know, it, it's a cool moment, but it, it's not very deep. And... This book was a gift in that, you know, it, it, we did get to learn more about this character. And unfortunately, he had to go to jail and to find out about it. I mean, we, we open the book, we find him, you know, he's imprisoned. He's stripped of his powers. He's stripped of his royalty. Um, subject, you know, there, there's the sadistic cruelty of, you know, the, the being that oversees this jail that, you know, apparently the Inhumans actually set up themselves years before. And it was like this secret place that, you know, was only known within the Terrigen Codex. Even though it's sort of this open secret because it sort of became this dumping ground for various galactic riffraff. But, you know, this jailer, um, very sadistic. He tortures, he kills, and he resurrects his subjects, like, over and over again, and is obsessed with them. I mean, he, there's this refrain of, you know, name your crime, you know. You know, um... Very shortly in, we actually get to like the real heart of the story, and this is the real magic. It's this unexpected friendship and fellowship with his fellow prisoners. Um, there's a strange alien uh, child named Blinky, who's a new character. Um, there's a scroll named Rava, who's like a really fantastic character. That's so I would love to see come back, you know, somehow. Um, we get two Silver Age obscurities. We get Metal Master, who was an early uh, Hulk villain. And we have uh, Monsteroso, which was one of the original, like, Kirby creatures from 1961. You know, a genius, you know, little touch. Um, but the most significant of all, Crusher Creel, the Absorbing Man. And the issue where Black Bull and Creel bond is probably one of my single favorite issues of anything the entire decade. I mean, he's a criminal. He's an admitted criminal, but he's not a monster. You know, and Black Bolt, you know, always been a very dry character, you know, due to, you know, his condition, you know, not being able to speak, finally displays, like, a little bit of humor and, and, and levity with him. And, you know, there's a wonderful moment, you know, where Black Bolt, you know, kind of, like, indignantly admits, you know, well, I've hurt and I've, you know, killed many, but I'm no murderer. Which, that doesn't really, you know, <laughs> you get it, like, wait a minute, what did you just say? <laughs> and, yes. <laughs> You get this genuine friendship, you know. I, I love, uh, you know, there's the running gag where, you know, uh, Creel calls him Wishbone, which starts out kind of as, <laughs> it's sort of an insult, and it actually turns into, you know, something like, a, you know, with affection. Um, you know, back to the whole, you know, theme of, you know, the, 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 the torturing and the killing and everything. Um, it's a very, like, sci-fi treatise on punishment versus rehabilitation. Um, it's not heavy-handed. 
Um, but it goes into, you know, that there is a dignity to repentance and reflecting on the actions that, you know, that we do and to those that have been affected. And Creel actually speaks to that where he says, yeah, in these moments that I'm here, I do think about those that are affected by what I did. And again, I'm not a monster. You know, I do what I need to do out of necessity or out of poverty or, you know, what have you. Um, I mean, later on, I mean, you know, when the action breaks out, we get an, an exciting prison break. Um, some more uh, really cool deep pulls. Uh, Death's Head makes appearance. And probably, this is my, I'm going to call this as my favorite deep pull of the decade. Spider. Who is, with a Y. <laughs> who hasn't been seen since, it was the New Mutants, like late 60s. I want to say it was like 88, 89. Kind of like a one and done villain, you know. Mm -hmm. Showed up in like, you know, the official handbook 89. <laughs> never heard from again. Pops up. You know, he's an inmate, but he's also one that's kind of on the inside with the jailer, and he kind of participates in the sadism, and he's uh, kind of like an early antagonist in the story. Um, we've got a very heroic sacrifice. I don't want to spoil it for anybody out there. I mean, I really want to put this out there for anybody who hasn't read it. I mean, this is a push. Like, go out, you know, get the trades, get the digitals, whatever. Don't pirate it! <laughs> um but there's a you know heroic sacrifice and it sets up um, second half of the series. It, it is a twelve issue series. It's basically two six issue arcs. Um, the prison arc being the you know the first half. The second half, you know, without really going into a lot of details, is really about honoring friendships and fathers and sons. They go yeah very deep into Black Bolt's son and the relationship and the estrangement there and it's addressed and, and, and resolved. Um, I, I, Ahmed tells a very good story. I mean, but the real magic is, you know, caring about Black Bolt and this motley bunch. I mean, they, they gel together perfectly. You care about each and every one of them. I mean, it works great. I mean, it, 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 the book is called Black Bolt, but it really is, it's a team book. It's a very, <laughs> very oddball, you know, group that, you know, just kind of like works together. Um, I think you know that really shows like Marvel at its like very best when it takes these offbeat characters. We haven't mentioned Hawkeye yet. I know that's probably going to be in all of our honorable mentions, but mm -hmm. you know they're like un, you know, like numerous like solo books. Yeah. Hawkeye, I'll call yeah. Hawkeye. Hawkeye. Yes, yes. <laughs> it is a good way to distinguish it from other Hawkeye books. Yeah, and, and, and you know, before I hand it back over, I mean, you gotta talk about Christian Ward's artwork. I mean, he oh, does yeah. that same. You know, that lavish alchemy, you know, I mean, Odyssey, which is also on my... We're going to go over our list yeah. at the end. I mean, that was another one that I considered. I mean, that that's a, a new sci-fi classic. I mean, I think we've been spoiled this decade for artists who work in a very painterly style. Yes. Ward, oh, Asad Rivik, you know, Ivan Reese right... Or, excuse me, Rod Reese right now with the mutants. Franco Villa. Franco Villa? Jesus Christ, Franco Villa. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, some of uh, Sean Phillips... He, he did some painted work mm -hmm. in uh, Killer Be Killed mm -hmm. that was just gorgeous. You know, it's been a good era for like more mixed media rather than yeah. like, you know, a yes. specific house style. Mm -hmm. yeah. And this book, you know, definitely speaks to that. So, I mean, that that's really my pick for, you know, my, my, my personal choice is the best big two book that I think I've read this decade. And it's more that shock of the new. You know? Yeah. It's a great story in itself, but I mean... That thing you just did not expect that you know came out of the side. Um, you know, I, I think obviously 
for a decade's worth of comics, you know, we each picked three, and they're not necessarily our individual top three, but they're three that are definitely worthy of note. Um, you know, but there's plenty of room here to go into honorable mentions. Uh, I've got my stack, but Matt, why don't we why don't we start with you? And, uh, if let's be a little more casual here. I yeah. bring something up. You know, <laughs> we'll discuss because I thought it was interesting, Rob, you saying that you know with. Keeping the Inhumans small is how it helped them to break out. Because I, I specifically had a whole little section about the return of the All Ages comic as a thing. Mm-hmm. And not, you know, just your, your dogmans and your wimpy kids. But your... The, and props where props is due here. Marvel has done a series of especially female-based heroes in all-ages books over the course of this decade that have been some of the best comics Marvel has put out. And again, in keeping the Inhuman small, Ms. Marvel yeah. from G. Mm-hmm. Willow Wilson and uh, the various contributor the artists that she worked with and Saladin Ahmed's current magnificent Ms. Marvel. But you get that, you get the heart stoppingly optimistic and wonderful unstoppable wasp mm-hmm. um, the also sadly just ended unbeatable squirrel girl uh, and the vastly underrated Patsy Walker aka Hellcat oh my that series was so was criminally underrated criminally <laughs> underrated the uh, Brittany Williams is working on an OG one of the DC Inker Zoom books coming up soon that Ooh. I am looking forward to. But outside of Marvel, I mean, DC didn't do as much with this, but they did Gotham Academy, mm-hmm. which was a great book. And there's another that will come up towards the end of my list, so I'm going to save that for there. But especially, and I mean, I talked about Giant Days before, but in general, the Boombox line, Boom's All Ages imprint that started out with Lumberjanes. And where Giant Days came from. Where Giant Days came from. Uh, the what is often called sort of the male answer to Lumberjanes but is so, is different and so that's sort of a reductive statement but it's often how it's but Backstagers, uh, Goldie Vance, mm-hmm. uh, some other ones that aren't coming as readily to mind but all those are great all ages comics um going i mean image this has also been the decade that image the transition of image to boutique publisher began with kirkman back in 2003 yeah but this decade has been when image has become the center for big name boutique publishing and there are you know, talking about uh, sex criminals mm-hmm. reminds me of another book that works in a somewhat similar comedy caper vein, which I really hope we get some resolution. Uh, Nick Spencer and Steve Lieber's Fix, which might have crept onto my list if we had gotten a resolution, but it's sort of those creators had other things to do, and so we still have some, you know, time on that. But well, Nick, Nick Spencer's off Archie now. That's true. Yeah, a little extra. I mean, he's still doing Amazing Spider-Man. But. Yeah, that, uh, there's time there. That, yeah. That's a time suck. <laughs> uh, but the, again, on, a lot of this stuff I wanted to talk about was the stuff that doesn't, you know, jump out and immediately, you know, hit you, which is why I didn't talk about the obvious 
Scott Snyder or Tom King Batman stuff. But Joshua Williamson's image books of this decade, uh, his supernatural caper ghosted, his fantasy book Birthright, and especially his serial killer horror Nailbiter, are great, great comics. Um, and hitting licensed books, because I wanted to kind of go there, and also sticking with IDW, they've had pretty much one creative team on Ghostbusters since 2011. The book hasn't always been published. There have been a couple of ongoings, a bunch of uh, maxi-series and mini-series. But Eric Burnham and Dan Schoening have built a Ghostbusters multiverse. You know, with all Ghostbusters from, you know, your, your movies, your real Ghostbusters, your Answer the Call female Ghostbusters, your extreme Ghostbusters. They've all... The Ghostbusters have met the Transformers. The Ghostbusters have met the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. It's this wide open world and a love letter to everything Ghostbusters and, and also there was a great series from Kelly Thompson uh, who uh, she didn't answer the call the, the yeah. female Ghostbusters miniseries which was a great an underrated series from an underrated film shout, oh by the way shout out to K Thompson real quick uh, Deadpool number one really really good <laughs> like, I'm reading Deadpool again <laughs> uh, and Finally, swinging back to one more corner of the big two, Superman in the New 52 was spotty at best. That is very kind of you. Uh, I mean, I've heard that Morrison's stuff was interesting. I've heard good things about Gene Luan Yang's run towards the end. Um, but... Making Superman the stranger in a strange land does not work, in my opinion. Superman is is hu is more human than human. Yeah, and, yeah. <laughs> and that first that the New Fifty Two taking stripping away everything that made him human, stripping away his his parents are dead. He has no real relationship with Lois Lane. Jimmy Olsen's just sort of there. Um, it 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 hurt, and I think that is why that version of the character failed. The Rebirth Superman, specifically Peter Tomasi's Superman, where it was a book about Super Dad, Superman as the best dad ever, <laughs> with John and with Lois being a great mom and still kicking so much ass was a book that made your heart sing. I love Batman. Batman will always be my favorite because Batman is the smartest guy in the room. And that that, that is an archetype that I love. But more often than not, you read a Batman comic and... Your brain feels great, but it's not always <laughs> hitting your heart. And it's one of the things that I like about stuff that Tom King is doing is that it is emotionally evocative. Every issue of Tomasi Superman makes you feel warm and fuzzy. <laughs> and a, that is a very reverse New 52. Because yes. remember when that whole thing started and... Oh, was it Dan Diddy or was it Bob Harris? Probably Bob Harris. Who was like, superheroes can't be married. There's nothing interesting there. Yeah. <laughs> 
Superman and Lois are the DC Universe's marquee couple. And they are one of the DC Universe's two best couples up there with Ralph and Sue Dibney. And I will continue to talk about Ralph and Sue Dibney until I get my Ralph and Sue Dibney miniseries. It's a good thing you left your soapbox at my house in the last time you were here. I know. <laughs> <laughs> but on top of the wonder that was Tomasi's Superman, there was also Tomasi's Super Sons. Shout out Dan and Jake. Um, Super Damien and John are a marvelous one-two act. And Tomasi did an excellent job. I mentioned it with my Batman, but his Batman and Robin. But you put Damien, who is the ultimate straight man, who has next to no sense of humor with John Kent, who is, golly shucks, gee! And <laughs> they play off each other so well. It is an all-ages superhero book. Emphasis on the superhero, because there is action and since they are both part of it is one of the few benefits to them both having been in other titles that were their a titles because you the the justice league works best when you have one or two characters who aren't in other books so they can be the driving force of the emotional narrative while your Batman, Supermans, and Flashes and stuff just have action stuff. Super Sons did a great job where they did great character beats, but you didn't have to have this do the heavy lifting of forwarding anything but their emotional arcs. You didn't have to forward their plot arcs because that was happening in Superman for John and in. Teen Titans and a couple of other different places for Damien. Mm -hmm. So you just got to have big, crazy superhero adventures and you got to inspect who they were as characters. It's a delight. And the Superman books, I mean, Dan Jurgens's run on action at the same time is also very good. And I'm enjoying, as much as, yeah, I kind of wish John hadn't been aged up, I'm enjoying a lot of what Bendis is doing, especially in action, which is more the you know, crimey sort of book. And that leads into Rooka's Lois Lane, which may or may not be showing up in the advent calendar very soon from when we are recording this. Spoiler, it is. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but Superman is back on track. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, there, there were some great runs on uh, a lot of the main DC heroes books over this decade. But shout out to Pete Tomasi for... Getting Superman, and actually Dan Jurgens, who wrote the Superman and Lois miniseries that spun out of one of the few good things that came from Convergence, um, <laughs> that gave us this. And yeah, uh, it's nice to see Superman back being what he should be. That's great. Um, all right, so my list of honorable mentions actually got knocked over and or <laughs> fell, fell over in the middle of us recording. Uh, because, quite frankly, I don't own bookends. And I tried to stand <laughs> all the books up with an Apocalypse bust and a Funko TARDIS. And it didn't, it didn't work. Um, anyway, so some of the stuff that I really enjoyed uh, this decade uh, that I'm looking at right now, and I'm sure there's some other stuff, obviously, but uh, Assassination from Kyle Starks and Erica Henderson. Uh, you know, rest in peace, Squirrel Girl, but we'll always have this great... Uh, five issue story about the 20 best assassins in the world all killing each other and then some of the surviving ones becoming best friends 
<laughs> um, Criminal by Rubric and Phillips, specifically the Bad Weekend two-parter uh, that goes into some of the, the, the saddest parts of, of comic book history and original art theft and forgery and... Uh, yeah, that I, I I've 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 read a lot of stories that are sort of like comic book industry gossip stories this year. Uh, besides Bad Weekend, there was also the Con Artist. Uh, it was a novel by Fred Van Lente uh, that we talked about on the show earlier this year. Good stuff. Support the Hero Initiative, folks. Yeah, for the love of God. Um, I do have I got some King Batman in front of me, uh, specifically the War of Jokes and Riddles trade. Uh, Kite Man, hell yeah. Kite Man just showed up in Harley Quinn this week. He was a delight. <laughs> um mark wade's daredevil run yeah uh wade and somni that that is uh an unbeatable pair you know wade is is wade can be hit and miss but daredevil is is some all-cylinder stuff uh hawkeye fraction and david aha that's that that's the gold standard for for hawk guy <laughs> uh mr miracle king and mitch garrett's uh, that's that's nearly perfect comics. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I had a non-comics reading friend actually read out to me, reach out to me today, and, and he knows I, I've talked about Mr. Miracle. He's like, okay, so on a scale of one to right now, should I read it? I, get, I gave it a nine only because I think that some prior knowledge of of the characters is, is – there's a little bit of barrier to entry there. But, you know, if you've got a friend who can explain it to you, then you're good. I mean, you know. They're all larger than life characters, and they have outrageous hats. Yep. And it redefines the use of a veggie platter. Yes, now and forever. Uh, Paper Girls, Brian K. Vaughn and Cliff Chang. Uh, one of a couple of Vaughn, and immediately next to it, Saga, <laughs> by Vaughn and Fiona Staples. Hopefully, that's coming back next year to do the other half of its run. Um, Criminally underrated series from Image, five issues, Shirtless Bear Fighter. Yes. Jody LaHoop, Sebastian Gurner, Neil Vendrell. Um, it's ridiculous in the same way that Assassination is ridiculous. It's that heightened 80s action movie insanity. And if they ever adapt it, I need Christopher Maloney to play Shirtless Bear Fighter. Which actually reminds, just sorry to cut back no, in, but do it, it reminds do it. me of another book from early in the decade. Uh, Read Gunther. It's an all-ages book from Image about a cowboy who rides his best friend. He rides a bear, not a human, not a, not a horse. He rides a bear, and they get in wacky adventures. It, it ran for eight issues and was just delightful fun. And the creators have since gone on to do animation. They created, uh, I think it's Disney, uh, Big City Greens. Oh, okay. And yeah. the one of the brothers, it was uh, Chris and Shane Houghton, or Houghton or Houghton, who created the... Reed Gunther and created Big City Greens, and one of them is the voice of one of the main characters. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. Reed Gunther, real yes. fun. Read it if you like Big City Greens. Um, so, I, I, everybody has their feelings about Nick Spencer, but listen, guys, Superior Foes of Spider-Man is is good comics. Yes. Steve Lieber uh, killing it on Jimmy Olsen right yeah. now. The creative team of The Fix, which I mentioned a bit ago. Also that, also and especially that. Uh, Uncanny X-Force. Uh, I guess that's another example. Rick Remender told somebody to drown in hobo piss once, but uh, <laughs> still a real good story. Um, probably one of the best uses of Deadpool this decade, too. The scene yes. where he gives sort of the, 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 the heart-to-heart to Evan and, the and then leaves him porn. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Wade. Yeah, that's that's A-plus Deadpool right there. Uh, Vision, back to the Tom Kingwell, mm-hmm. him and Gabriel Walta. I still have uh, Sentient from TKO, uh, Jeff Lemire and Walta. 
on my uh, to read pile. I got to get to that, but I also have to get through December. <laughs> and then uh, finally, <coughs> excuse me, uh, Wick Div, Wicked in the Divine, uh, Kieran Gillen, Jimmy McKelvey. That wrap this year. It's you know, real quick. It is going to be be interesting to see how Image in the next year or so recovers from losing a lot of its heavy hitters this past year and lost Wick Div. The Saga hiatus is still on, so it technically doesn't have Saga. It lost its flagship title. Wicked in the Divine. Oh my god. Yeah, Walking Dead, yes. Yeah, it lost Walking Dead, which has been its flagship title for a decade plus. Yeah, like 15 years or whatever. But uh, So it's it's got a little bit of recovery to do. I mean, and no offense to any of his other books, because, I mean, Kirkman is still writing Oblivion Song and Die, Die, Die. die. Uh Uh-huh. And they're both, but neither of them are walking dead. Right. So it's, yeah, it, it, it's going to be a rebuilding year. Yeah. Trust the process. Yeah. <laughs> but on to you, Rob. I'm going to drop these quick and heavy like bricks. Um, <laughs> we already mentioned Tom King's vision in Mr. Miracle. I'm going to also add in Bat's Annual 2. His Swamp Thing special. Yes. yes. Amazing. And have you read Bat's Annual 4? I haven't. I haven't oh. either. Uh, my favorite King Batman story. Excellent. Okay. Okay. There's going to be some overlap. We've got Saga. Um, Ewing's Immortal Hulk. Yeah. And, yes. and actually more significantly with me, his brief Rocket series where he joins the Technet, which is another <laughs> one of my little like sweet spots. Um, Slot and All Red's uh, Silver Surfer, as well as the uh, Incredible Black, uh, one of the year's best. Murder Falcon, Sex Crimson. Oh, Murder Falcon. Yeah. So good. Think Tank, uh, Extremists. I mean, along with... Um, Creo, I mean, we had another big breakout with the Blob, another character we didn't realize we would love. Yeah. And I do want to throw in currently with um, X-Force, not the hottest of the of the Dawn of X, but Black Tom. <laughs> Come on. Like I said, you know, on Twitter, I mean, he's, you know, across between, you know, Sid the Fascist Pig from Children of Men and Tattoo from Fantasy Island. With a little bit of Sergeant Hatred from the Venture <laughs> Brothers. Um, the Great Space Riders from Black Mask. Mm-hmm. Anthony Bourdain's Hungry Ghost. May he rest in yes. peace. Mm-hmm. Um, Rachel Rising. My favorite thing is Monsters. Paper Girls. J.H. Williams' Batwoman. Yeah. Uh, starting Ooh. out with Elegy. And sure. then, yeah. Um, Colin Bunn's Magneto. Mm. The mutant uh, Dexter. <laughs> um, the previously mentioned Odyssey. Godshaper from Boom. Mm-hmm. Um Heavy Metal with uh, Grant Morrison as the figurehead, especially um, they did the Death Special. We had Irvine Welsh making his comics debut. Um, sort of a new golden age for Heavy Metal magazine. It's like an old staple that, you know, still works its magic. And then most recently, Cat Crowley, which is just absolutely delightful. That series oh, is a lot of you're fun. You're an old horror yeah. fan. I mean, especially, you know, for the local crowd here. If anybody remembers in the 80s, uh, Saturday Night Dead. <laughs> You know, one o'clock on NBC, uh, Stella, the man eater from Maniunk. Anybody <laughs> who has those fond memories, you know, of the horror host, currently uh, with like, Sven Gulli also. Yeah. You know, fans of Peter Vincent from uh, Fright Night. I mean, great and stuff. Elvira. Yeah. You just, you gotta mention Elvira. Oh, absolutely. So, yeah, that, that's my list right there. It, it was a good decade. Yeah. It, it was a good decade of reading and collecting and. Begging and boarding. Don't let anybody tell you that comics suck or comics are dying and everything. I mean, there really is something for everybody. And, you know, I urge everybody go out there, pursue some joy. I mean, the yeah. hunt is part of the fun. Yeah. And and the current all-ages boom is only going to keep that going. 
So, you know, shout, shouts, you, you, you mentioned the dog man, shouts to Raina Telemire, because yes. that, that shit is going to give us a next generation of comics readers. Absolutely. Uh, and I think that's a good note to end on. So, uh, guys, uh, happy decade, and uh, hindsight is twenty twenty. That's it for this week's show. As always, you can listen to WMQ&A on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and at WMQComics.com, where new episodes move Tuesday mornings. You can support WMQ&A and WMQComics.com at Patreon.com slash WMQComics, where just a dollar donation gets you early access to episodes, the ability to promote your work on our site, and a customized bonus reading column written by our own Matt Lazowitz, built around the character, creator, or theme of your choice. And if we hit $10 in monthly donations, we'll start a new project, either a second podcast about the DC animated features, a deep dive retrospective on James Robinson and Tony Harris's Starman, or a manga for beginners feature. Uh, big thanks to our existing patrons, Steve Morris from Shelf Dust, Charlie Davis from The Young Ones Podcast, Robert Secundus from Docs Talks at XavierFiles.com, and Scott Madrinsky from Mojoswork.com. You can follow WMQ Comics on Twitter and Facebook, and you can follow me on Twitter at Daniel P. Grote and Matt Lazowitz at MattLaz1013. Not a fan of social media? Sign up for our weekly Q newsletter, which gives you the best of WMQ every week in your inbox. Finally, and most importantly, check out WMQComics.com for all your comics news, previews, reviews, interviews, and plain old views. And we'll see you next time. WMQA!